guys. I'm, uh, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the song. And, and, I, and, I, and I discovered this w- with myself a lot. In the moment, I am so resonating with the lyric. Yes, give me Jesus. You can have the world. But the reality is that isn't true of my life normally. It's often more just in those moments because if I was to be honest, I think what it truly is for me more is give me Jesus and give me the world. And sad to say too many times, if I'm really being honest, it's probably give me the world and you can have Jesus. And this is what we're going to talk about today. It's something that the Bible calls idolatry. And I want to lead into this today with a question that that someone texted in last week. And, And this is what he said. This is what he asked. He said, okay, did Paul write all these amazing letters, these letters of the New Testament that we're looking at, did Paul write these to the Greeks and the Romans because they believe in Greek gods and Roman gods? And the answer to that is uh, partially. Who Paul was actually writing to were Christians. Some who happened to be Jews, some who happened to be Greeks, some who happened to be Romans, and some who happened to be other nationalities as well. And the primary thing, the main thing that Paul would write about was, was honestly to encourage them. To encourage them in light of the truth and reality that, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that his kingdom has come, and what it means to have a relationship with him. But the reality is that many of these people that he wrote to at one time did worship Greek and Roman gods, and others as well. And even for those who would kind of put that part of their life aside, at least formally, the reality is, and you know this as well as I do, that what's ingrained to you in your childhood and through those formative years of your life, it doesn't shake easily, does it? And so the echoes of those Greek and Roman gods would continue to affect them. Not only so, they lived in a culture that was immersed in Greek and Roman gods, in in, in idolatry, in pagan uh, pagan shrines, in in temples. And, And no matter how much you try to stay separate from things, the fact is, if you live in a world where those things surround you in big and little ways every day, it's gonna rub off. Even if you don't watch TV or go to movies, the fact is that by living in this culture today, they're going to affect the conversations around you and the things you see and hear, right? It was the same thing with those Greek and Roman gods and idols and shrines in the ancient world. And so much of what Paul writes about in his letters is encouragements to these Christians to make sure that they're not going back into those former ways, to be on their guard against the influence of idols in their lives, And guys, I want to encourage you that this is not a first century issue. This is a 21st century issue as well. Maybe we don't have little statues in corners of our rooms with candles lit all around them, but idolatry exists in just as concentrated forms here today. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about these things called idols, and what are they, and why are they such a big deal to Paul, and what, what, what idolatry really 
is and why at a fundamental level, Paul is just like, be on your guard against it. Now, idols and idolatry, big stuff in the Old Testament. One of the key things that, that, that the Old Testament warns the, the ancient people of Israel against. But interestingly enough, it approaches it from two different points of view. One point of view in the Bible is to kind of go like this. It's the, what I call the, are you kidding me approach. I mean, are, are you kidding me? You, you're going you're gonna to carve a statue and think that that's going to save you? Are you kidding me? You're going you're gonna to actually go and look at that piece of rock over there that people have like shaped and fashioned into something and go, that's a god? And you'll see at times this just kind of like, like are you kidding me? Come out of the Bible. I, I love the prophet Isaiah, um, how he writes on this. And just pick up on the sarcasm and, and the, the, the just like almost laughable context of this and what he has to say. In chapter 44, he writes this. He writes, Half of the wood that the man cuts down, he burns in the fire. Over it, he cooks his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. And he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. From the rest of that piece of wood, he makes a god. He is idle. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. Listen to what the prophet says. My translation. You're idiots. They know nothing. They understand nothing. He says, their eyes, it's like their eyes are plastered over. Can they not see? And their minds are closed. They, they, They can't understand. No one stops to think. No one has the understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel and the other half I make a god? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? And he concludes by saying, this man feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. And one of the main approaches you're going to see in the Bible is that these things that that, that people are so afraid of that they make such a big deal about, it's nothing. It's laughable. It's a block of wood. It's a piece of stone. And I don't know about you, but the Bible would say, I'm not going to conduct my life afraid of what a block of wood might do to me. And yet, and yet, the Bible will also speak in other terms that come from a different tack that have some of the fiercest warnings against idolatry. Let me read you from God's top 10 list. He says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Because I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. That at some fundamental level, God is saying, I am a jealous God. And I'm not ashamed to say it. Yeah. I'm jealous, cope. And I want you. I want your loyalty. I want your heart. I want your devotion. I don't want to share you any more than a husband wants to share his wife with a dozen other men. Flee from idolatry. And you see these two lines of thought converge 
and this apostle, this, this follower, this disciple of Jesus named Paul. On one hand, he'll say this. We know that an idol's nothing at all. It's nothing in all the world, and there's no God but one. Amen? And yet he'll in the next same breath say this. My dear friends, flee, run. Flee from idolatry. And what I want to do today is bring these two streams together to answer the question, why? Why is this such a big deal for Paul? Why such warning and encouragement to run and flee? What is idolatry at its core, and why is it such a big deal? Okay? Now, let's jump in. First big issue of idolatry. All right, I want to show you a list. Here it is. All right? Now, I want you to look at this list. And what I want you to do today is, is just kind of take a moment in your mind, and I want you to divide these words into two categories. If you were given the assignment, divide these words into two categories, how would you divide these words? Just take a minute and, uh, and work that out in your own mind. Okay, you kind of got it, you think? Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or anything, but, but I'm going to take a stab that a lot of you probably did it this way. Did you do this? On one side, you put God, angels, heaven, and soul. And on the other side, you put toads, earth, rocks, and body. Yeah? A lot? Okay. Okay. May I suggest a more biblical way? Because idolatry at its root is putting anything that God created on par with God himself. See, the Bible is clear. There is one creator, and he is God, and everything else in this world is his creation, and those two are not on the same level. We want to make divisions between spiritual and material. But to God, those are false distinctions. There's just stuff. Be it your body, your soul, be it angels or toads, be it heaven or earth, it is all a creation of God. And let me say it again. Idolatry in its fundamental core is putting something from creation on par with the living God. I love how Paul writes about this to the Roman church uh, when he says this. Look at this passage. I love this. He says, although these, these people who, who chased after this, they, they knew God. They knew God. They said it was unmistakable, God's, God's, God's presence and, God, and the knowledge of who he is. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as such or gave thanks to him. But look what happened. What, what, what happens? Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And it expressed itself like this. They claimed to be wise, but in reality, they proved themselves to be fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Creation. Guys, anytime in your life that you put something on par with God, on the same side of that list, that's idolatry. Okay. I want to do another list. I want to show you another way of looking at this. Here's a list again, okay? 
same drill, divide these words into two categories, if you will. Take about 30 seconds and do it in your mind today. Okay? Now, at this point, you, you kind of probably have a sense that you're being set up, so you're on your game, right? I mean, you're, you're on your guard. But, but, but 10 bucks says this. If this was the first slide that I was to show, or maybe you even still did it today, you would probably divide the list like so. On one side, God, angels, Christians, and the Lord's Supper. And on the other side of the list, you would put Statue of Zeus, demons, pagans, Meat sacrifice to idols. All issues in the Corinthian church that you can glean out of 1 Corinthians, okay? Okay. Want to put yourself on the line? Who did that? Anyone? Yeah, you're not going to admit it. All right. Way to go, man. Way to go. All right. What should the list be? Yeah, right. We just talked about this, right? It's God on one side, everything else on the other. And this is where I think those of you who call yourself Christians fall into even more danger than other people. Because it is easy to bifurcate this world into two categories of those who are with God and those who are against it. Things that are aligned with God's way and those that are in rebellion to it. And in the process to unwittingly put yourself in some kind of position with God as though, yeah, it's us over here. But see, in this world, there is two things, creator and creation. And whether that creation has, has, has been used or turned towards good or towards ill, it is still God's creation, and he still loves it as the creator, despite what it may be. Because anytime you put something on par with God, you are putting it on the wrong side of the list. Are you with me? And I think of life in ancient Corinth and these churches to which Paul would write. How they found themselves immersed in shrines and temples and idols everywhere. I'm here to tell you guys that it's, it's still a, a contemporary reality. Visit the emerging world. Get on a plane and go outside these borders. And you'll still see people enslaved or, or enraptured to blocks of wood and stone today. You don't even have to go that far. It's all around us. Maybe the most notable example I, I remember was going to a Hindu temple in the Chicagoland area. Going in, and it was set up like a museum with statues, literal statues behind plexiglass with worshipers coming in, leaving food offerings and flowers and incense, burning it to these, these, these statues of stone and wood for all of us to see. I remember going down to the cafeteria, going, yeah, they're, they're kind of sacrificing all this food upstairs. I wonder if that's what I'm eating down here. Oh, the Corinthian issues are alive today. But you know, straight up, with the exception of maybe a few of you, my, my, my gut tells me that most of us here wouldn't be caught dead bowing down to a block of wood or a little statue of stone. But, you know, we have idols in other ways. The, uh, 
an early reformer in the church by the name of Martin Luther, he wrote this, this little introductory manual to help teach what the Christian faith was about. And, and in it, he, he, he started to kind of discuss this, this first commandment thing where, where God says, you shall have no other gods before me and, and do not make an idol because God's a jealous God. He starts talking about this. And I love this comment that he makes in the midst of this. He writes this. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that I say, that I say is really your God. Because false gods are not just about statues of wood and, 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 and statues of stone. Your God is your thing that you give your heart to. What is it that defines you? You know, what do you wake up for? And what is it that motivates you through your day? What is it that... The truth be told gives you your sense of self-identity. That you delight in and take joy in. That's your God. That's your idol. And it's not always just in positive ways. In the ancient world, no one ever thought about having a personal relationship with God. No one ever thought that a God would love them, choose them, or be their friend. No, they feared him. They feared him. So much of pagan idolatry was about buying the gods off. How do I appease them or brown nose them or butter them up so they don't strike me dead or my kids? What is it that scares you? What fears define you and drive you and truth be told, what do you find your life wrapped around that you are trying to placate and appease? Whatever that is, I'm here to tell you. That's your God too. Because fundamentally what God is is that person or thing that you give your heart to that drives you and defines you, that your allegiance is tied to, that is what a God really is. And it doesn't require going to shrines or burning incense or saying prayers. It manifests itself in all kinds of ways. What drives your life? For us who are Christians, you know what sadly? Let's go back to the list. It's often even good things. It's causes or, or missions. It's things about God. Sometimes it's even the Bible itself that we fall more in love with than the living God himself. What is your passion and your pursuit, whether good or bad? Who do you live for? Your spouse? Or how about your kids? Is it your career or your sense of self-image, your health and your appearance? Is it winning people over so that they'll like you? Is that what drives you here today? Is it, is it your future security or pleasure or some other kind of fear? Luther will write elsewhere, idolatry does not consist simply in setting up an image and worshiping it. It takes place in here. The shrine to idolatry 
is in the heart. And anytime we place something ahead of the living God or split our loyalty with him, we put something on par with the creator. And we sin against him. That's the first big issue the Bible has with idolatry. Now let me show you the second, all right? Got another list for you. Same drill. God's not in this one. It's a little bit more obtuse, I know. Divide it into two categories. How do you split the list? Take 30. Angels, mountains, animals, stars, humans, sunsets, trees, and Mars. It sounds like Dr. Seuss. I didn't intend that. (laughs) How do you split the list? It's a little fishier, isn't it? Let me suggest this. You know why? Because there is one image of God in this world, and that's you. Look what Genesis has to say. Before the fall, before sin came into the world, the way that God designed this world to be, look at what God has to say. He creates humanity on the sixth day, and he comes to it and he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. And it says, God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. You are the image of God. And it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Because there is one image of God in this world, and that is you. Take a look at the list. Maybe you have seen the glory of God in all these kinds of things. Maybe you have said, if only I could see the face of angels, wow. Or maybe you look in the sunsets and the mountains and the trees of this world and see the thumbprint of God all over it. But if you dare put that on par with the image of God that's in you, you vandalize the very image of God itself. You denigrate it. Because God has put his mark in you and said, you what I look like. You are the representation of who I am. You are to be, may I use a different word, idol, in this world for people to see and know me. And I love what Genesis says. I mean, what does God fundamentally do? He rules, right? He creates and he rules. And what job does he give humanity to do? Rule. You're my representatives. You're my ambassadors, my governors, my vice regents, my vicars, if I can use a religious term, here on this earth. You are my mark and image. Bring my image in presence and rule to the ends of this globe and the galaxy from the farthest expanses to the most microscopic forms. And so many people hear this and they get the wrong ideas, though like, ah, king, man, you know, and just like it's all about, no, because is that what a good king is about? Rule with the goodness, the kindness, 
the servanthood and injustice that I've designed this world to experience that I'm giving you to bring, which means that your life has cosmic significance. This is God's purpose for you to bring order to chaos, to bring beauty to that which is ugly, to bring priests to where there is conflict, to bring justice to where injustice reigns, to bring good to where evil is entrenched, to bring the power and presence and face of God into every corner of this world. That means what you do with your life matters. It matters to God and the people and world he has entrusted to your care. That means that what you do to occupy yourself, what is it that drives your day where you find your employment, what you spend your organizing or creating, serving or administering justice, bringing kindness from someone who who rules a country to a mom who takes care of her newborn kid to bring that presence of God and goodness into this world and to put anything in this creation on the human side of the list is nothing short of you abdicating your role, of God giving you a throne and saying, I'm afraid to rule. No, not me. And letting this world run the way it wants and all the chaos and evil it brings. It is nothing short of subsuming the image that God has put on you and trying to relegate it to other things. See, idolatry not only puts something on par with God, it mars and substitutes his image in you. And I got a hard time because when I start thinking in those terms and I start looking at the, 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 the sum total of my life and the way that I typically think and the patterns and behaviors that I'm wrapped up in, I realize really quickly, I am one vandalized, marred image. How about you? I look at Genesis 1 and God's purpose and call for me. I look at what he says, this is what's supposed to define you, man. And go, that's, is, is, is that me? Have I been guilty of giving you a bad name? Have I been guilty of misrepresenting you, O Lord, and vandalizing your image in this world? It's kind of laughable. It makes me think I should have put a picture up on this. Um, Someone shared this with me recently. In the Ukraine... Old Soviet bloc. There's a number of laws that, that are set up to distance themselves from communism in every conceivable way. And in Ukraine, one of these laws is that it is no longer allowed or legal to have an image of Lenin, the, uh, the Bolshevik, not the Beatle, okay? No longer legal to have an image of Lenin. But of course, through the the Soviet regime, there were statues of Lenin all over the place, and some of these are valuable, some of these are works of art, some of these are just plain heavy, and they don't know what to do with them, 
all right? There's this one image in the Ukraine. I think it's in the city of Odessa. You can look this up. Google it. I encourage you. Where they go, we can't have Lenin. What do we do with this thing? So someone got the bright idea to start fashioning some stuff around it. They put a helmet on it. They put a cape. It is now a statue of Darth Vader standing in Odessa, Ukraine. (laughs) All right? Anytime, anytime you switch human with something on the list, it is Darth Vader in the Ukraine. No, because that's really cool. But you get the meaning, all right? Are you with me? And, and, And we do it. Come on. We're guilty of vandalizing the image. Which leads to the third thing that Paul has to say. There's this incredible, this incredible poem that he writes, and it's to this, this church in a city, a Greek city, riddled with, with, with idolatry called Colossus. You can read this letter to him in, in, in a book in the Bible called Colossians. And in this poem, he writes something absolutely incredible about Jesus. Look at what he says and don't miss it. Don't miss it. He is the image of the invisible God. Let me stop there. The Greek word for image is this, icon. It's where we get the English word icon, all right? He is the icon of the invisible God. Do you know how icon gets translated in the Bible? One of two main ways, image and idol. Who is Jesus? He is the idol of the invisible God. Don't go negative in your mind. Go value neutral. He is the representation, the personal presence, the tangible thing that shows you who the invisible God actually is. He's the firstborn over all creation, he is created material. I'm not talking the pre-incarnate Christ who was the Godhead since the beginning, but Jesus was born in a manger. By him, by who? By Jesus. All things were created. Wait a minute. Who is supposed to be on that one side of the list? Remember the first list? And what does he say about Jesus? He is the creator. What is Paul saying things in heaven and on earth the material and the spiritual don't miss this whether what thrones powers rulers authorities because what has Jesus come to do All things were created by him and for him. What Paul has to say is this, is that in Jesus, two things converge. The very invisible God himself with the human image that he created to bear his name on this earth come together in one person named Jesus to show us not only who God but what humanity truly is. See, I've met so many people that when they've come face to face with God and they've, they've examined their own life, they get afraid. And they get afraid because they think that by following God, somehow they are going to become less of themselves. Have you been there? You, you know what I mean? 
That somehow what God is going to call them to, to sacrifice or deny or turn from is going to be nothing short than marring who they are, their personality, their identity. That somehow and in some way it's going to divest them of what it means to be truly human in experiencing the things that a human craves to experience in this world. And the irony of it is this, that Jesus is the truest human of all. That if you want to discover what true humanity really is supposed to look like, look at Jesus. That without Jesus, we are nothing but a cheap carbon copy substitute of what God intended humanity to be. And it's this Jesus who came to show us who the creator is. No longer living in fear, no longer wondering, no longer trying to come up with any idea that we can latch on to to try to, you want to know God? Know Jesus. And to show us who we are called to be too. The danger of idolatry is not that somehow some statue is going to come and bite you in the night. The danger of idolatry is that it removes God and your heart and your mind from the place he should occupy. And the danger of idolatry is that it divests you of who God has called you to be. And that's why it's a big deal for Paul. And so, to bring it home, I think we got to ask the question, what gods are you serving here today? What are your idols? And what shrines of the heart or shrines of this world do you bow before? Band's going to come up. And what I want to invite you to do is actually take some time with that question. I'm going to invite you, we have a practice here, to, to examine ourselves because we believe that God is merciful and that God, no matter who we are or what we're guilty of, invites us to come to him and come clean. That we don't have to hide our pasts. We don't have to deny our sins. We don't have to rationalize the stupid things that we do. But that he invites us to, to truly take account of ourselves and bring those things to him. That's what I want to invite you to do today. So right now, if you would, just give yourself some, some quiet personal space. I'm going to do it too. I encourage you, bow your head and close your eyes. For me, it's, it just makes it easier when I try to do this. And come clean with God right now with every idol, false God, and false devotion that you bring.
like to invite you to rise and pray these words with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name.